0: doesn't like. I'm Lizzie. And I'm Beat. And this is a podcast where Dad and I explore the world of contemporary art with a different artwork or artist each week to try and test the limits of Dad's art appreciation.
1: Yes, and I think we've been pushing beyond the limits of the known universe in (laughs) in weeks, but uh, let's um, boldly go where no one has gone before, as they used to say in Star Trek.
0: Uh, Well, we've mentioned the Turner Prize many times in this podcast, but what do you know about it, actually?
1: Well, I know it's an annual prize given by the Tate Gallery to a British artist. That's probably the sum total of of my knowledge.
0: Well, so it's a prize for a British artist, but that can mean someone who's working primarily in Britain, or they're an artist born outside, born in Britain, working globally, um, so quite broadly defined, for an outstanding exhibition or other presentation in the award year. So the prize focuses on recent developments, so it's not like a lifetime achievement award. It's kind of a similar issue to the Oscars, You know, how Leonardo DiCaprio took forever to win an Oscar and then you sort of think, oh, well, he really deserves one for everything he's done, but, of course, that's not how it works. Yes, yeah. So we've talked about, of course, our very first episode was about... um,
1: Tracy Evans, My Bed.
0: Yes, (laughs) which did not win the Turner Prize, but which um, was in the running for it in the year that she made it. So each year there's a new panel of independent judges and the prize, maybe you like to bring up ageism, the prize used to have an age limit of 50 between 1991
1: and 2016. Oh, and now it's open to everyone, I understand, which is really, really good. So, I mean, I could conceivably win the Turner Prize if sudden artistic uh, abilities perhaps sparked by our podcasts, become uh, manifest.
0: Yeah, so it does um, acknowledge that artists can have a breakthrough at any age, although when you say that you conceivably could win it, I think that's really pushing the limits of what is conceivable. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, this week we're discussing someone who has already won the Turner Prize, and that's Rachel Whitehead, who won it for her work House in 1993.
1: Yes, and you've sent me a link to this house and it's a, essentially, I hope I describe it correctly, a concrete form of the interior of an old Victorian house from suburban London that was slated for demolition. And when it was the actual house demolished, she put this reproduction concrete version um, in the very same spot and it lasted there for a brief period. Have I got it right?
0: Well, almost. So it actually, it wasn't that it was, this original house was demolished and then a new replica put there. It was a concrete cast of the inside, excluding the roof space. So what happened was all the internal fixtures of this old Victorian terrace house were removed. The interior was sprayed with a kind of debonding agent to make sure that, The cast inside wouldn't stick to the actual walls. And then concrete was poured in. And then the external structure was removed.
1: Oh, okay. So it was almost like those retributive raids that are made by the Israeli security forces in the West Bank where they fill people's houses with concrete.
0: Yeah, basically. Um, although I'm not sure she was making that particular political <laughs> point, but um, as you say, it only lasted for 11 weeks between actually your birthday in 1993, the 25th of October, oh okay, and the 11th of January 1994, and so it was in an area of East London which was at that time undergoing extensive redevelopment. And the last occupier of this terrace house was named Sidney Gale and he had stayed in this terrace house after all the others around that terrace house had been demolished. So he stayed as long as he possibly could um, and he opposed the demolition, but then eventually had to leave. But of course, um, East London is an area with a very interesting, I guess, economic history. I mean, of course, your mother was a midwife. In Islam. Yes, she
1: was, and it was very um, economically depressed, uh, many poor people, and she would cycle through the streets to get to uh, attend at deliveries and was rarely assisted by a doctor. And she said that the smog was terrible as well, and mm-hmm. she found that probably the most frightening aspect. And she kept on thinking of um, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, uh, she was cycling through the fog, which is not really the best thing to dwell on.
0: No, very discomforting. Um, not probably going to put you in a nice mindset for delivering a baby. But, um, of course, in recent years, well, I mean this redevelopment in particular being an example of that, as with many previously economically depressed areas, they undergo redevelopment and gentrification, and um, that's what was happening Here And this was taken as an opportunity to um, engage artistically with the landscape. And it did raise a lot of concerns, I guess, about whether Rachel Whitebread had engaged sensitively enough with the community when you think that this last occupier of the house had wanted to stay for so long. And I mean, conceivably, he could have stayed a bit longer, but then instead this house just turned into an art piece, basically. But before I guess we get into that much more interestingly, this project was sponsored by Tarmac, which is a building materials company, which I think is a really good uh, little marketing opportunity.
1: Yeah, I guess it is. I, I suppose she was she making it as a protest against the development or was it just something that struck her as an interesting project to have this form of the interior of the house?
0: Well, it actually wasn't the first time that she'd made a work like this. She'd previously made a sculpture ghost um, in 1990, which was a plaster cast of four living room walls inside an abandoned Victorian, another abandoned Victorian townhouse, um, which she installed at the Chisonell Gallery. And that work was more by transplanting that room to a gallery space was more an exploration of the memories and events that can be sealed metaphorically within a particular space and it was more an exploration of space and architectural memory because she sort of reversed what we would how we would conventionally experience a space where you can walk into a room and view a room, but instead the sealed cast of a room became an object only of external appreciation. So Yes,
1: that, that strikes me as quite a, a strange approach because you'd think that as if you were walking through the, a cast of the interior of the rooms which were preserved with the space, the voids in place, You'd you'd get a better sense, or it would strike you more, as thinking of well, what did the people here do, and what were their experiences? This is almost like an anti-space, just yeah. a, a block of the of the rooms, but not the rooms themselves.
0: Yeah, and then when you think about the fact that you can't enter the space, this is where it really gets uh, socially and politically delicate because then if you expand it out to the fact that this was an area undergoing redevelopment this was an area where people had been pushed out of their homes to make space for that redevelopment and i mean of course alongside that basically always goes gentrification she had replaced these homes which had been demolished with an unenterable unlivable home and i think of course you can contrast the fact that those were demolished homes with the fact that this was just a house. It doesn't carry the same associations of home. I mean, when we think of the difference between just a house and what we consider home, the lack of personal connection in what we see as just a house underlines that difference. And when you think, of course, you know, the home, the house that uh, was used to make this artwork was already slated for demolition. It's not like she came along with her project and took this house away from the last occupant. But, of course, that resident had not wanted to leave, and some locals were angered by the fact that they were really struggling to pay their own rent. As we said, this was an economically depressed area of London, and yet this uninhabitable structure was receiving so much attention
1: yeah it's it's a little bit insulting actually to to have produced this piece of art if indeed we're going to call it art and i haven't yet rendered judgement on that
0: <laughs> well it it was a subject of discussion in the community there was graffiti painted on the side of the piece reading first what for, what's spelled W-O-T, then with the reply, why not? And, of course, that's the, I'm, I mean, I think we've had that discussion many times in galleries where you said, why would someone do this? And the, <laughs> the response you receive, which often seems unsatisfying, is, well, why not? I mean, there is, of course, this idea of art for art's sake that you can create. Uh, Yeah, undertake an act of creation without any particular purpose aside from the creation of art itself. But I think that when here, whether she meant to make a political comment or not, the fact that there was so much social political discussion in this area at that moment about use of space and residential space, it's, very hard to react to the piece without looking for some kind of purpose behind it.
1: Yeah, it is. And, and you know, this is one of the eternal questions uh, of the the difference between the impact on the viewer, the viewer's interpretation on the one hand, and the purpose of the artist. And did she herself disclose a purpose or was it just part of this line of of concrete um interiors that you mentioned that she had performed or created before
0: i don't even though we can read socioeconomic implications of this particular space and the memories that it holds as in house this particular installation even though we can read those implications in I don't think that they were necessarily intended because when you look at Ghost that earlier installation she had made the reason why she picked that particular house to make a cast of was that the room resembled the house that she grew up in so that was more about space carrying personal memory and experience Of course, and then here, I think this is a uh, continued exploration of material and form and space. But I think that where it got messy was that it seems like the opportunity arose to make a bigger version of that original cast. Of course, to do that, you needed a, a complete terrace house that wasn't going to be lived in anymore. And of course, where do you find such an opportunity in an area that's undergoing redevelopment? So I think she kind yes. of picked up this idea that she previously used, found the opportunity to do it, but that opportunity was so laden with socioeconomic discussion that I don't think was actually properly explored in an intentional way in her work.
1: Oh, sure. So in other words, she was forced by circumstance to use a house that was about to be demolished and thereby ended up Unwittingly becoming embroiled in this debate about rent and and the yeah. fate of the previous owner.
0: So yeah, so I, I think that's right. It was sort of circumstantial rather than intentional aspects of it, the expiration of space, I mean the turning negative space of an empty house into this monolithic block. you know, for example, we can look at things like the transformation of form because, of course, when you look at this building, this uh, public sculpture after the cast is made, it looks like a brutalist building, but, of course, it's actually a cast of a Victorian terrace house. Those are two very different styles of architecture, but you can look at that as a formal comment on the evolution of London architecture.
1: Yeah, that's that's very interesting, and I I wonder... I wonder if she anticipated that that would be the the result, so yeah that that is interesting
0: so when it was because it had to be demolished eventually to continue this redevelopment, the operator of the earth mover actually told the press quote It's not art, it's a lump of concrete because he was asked you know whether he felt bad about demolishing it
1: well, there you see. I really like that comment. And last week we were talking about the democratization of art. And now here I think we're talking about the democratization of art criticism. And <laughs> I think this fellow has it spot on, actually. I know I know we've been discussing the uh the the, the mode in which she explores space, but I think I, I'm still resistant to the idea of it being a worthwhile project to do it through filling the space rather than, than showing the space. But let's see, uh, you told me that it won the uh, Turner Prize, so there can't have been much competition that year.
0: <laughs> well, she also actually won another prize that year for this work, which was the Kay Foundation Art Award for the Worst British Artist, which offered double the money of the Turner Prize.
1: Wow. That's so she's spanning both extremes of the art world, best and the worst.
0: Yeah. So, this uh, K Foundation Prize was established by two former members and sort of notorious pranksters of this band called the KLF. And so, it was sort of set up as an opposition to, you know, we'll say this with capital letters the establishment, which was seen as controlling the Turner Prize and the art world at large. And what these people did was they had, at the same time, as because the Turner Prize potential winners are displayed in an exhibition, alongside at the same time these pranksters had their own exhibition uh, of money as art called Money, A Major Body of Cash, which was comprised of seven inanimate objects with cash uh, nailed to it, tied onto it or standing on it. And they explained that, quote, Over the years, the face value of these artworks will be eroded by inflation, while the artistic value will rise and rise. The precise point at which the artistic value will overtake the face value is unknown. Deconstruct the work now and you double your money, hang it on a wall and watch your face value erode, the market value fluctuate and the artistic value soar, the choice is yours.
1: Well, there in a nutshell, we have a a, a lot about what you yourself have written on in in an academic article which we co-authored about the whole question of how is a value put on art and what does that mean for corporate art collecting You, you could have produced couldn't you for this podcast or said that we should discuss the toaster the mixer and whatever else the people in in k foundation put forward as art with the money nailed to it as the actual artwork and i wouldn't have been able to bat an eyelid because this is the sort of thing that passes for art these days so if they're meaning to parody modern art of the type that's awarded the turner prize then i think they've succeeded brilliantly and yeah, I think well, they've, they've 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 really said that the emperor doesn't have clothes.
0: Well, the um, when you start then thinking about value, and you look at um, Rachel Whiteread's work, you have originally this terrace house, which the actual structure is now valueless. It's being demolished to make use of the land, so the structure of the house is worth. Nothing. The land it stands on is worth something to the developers. But then it's filled with concrete. And because it's a artwork, it becomes extremely valuable again. But of course, it's a temporary artwork. So it's fleeting nature at the end. You know, it doesn't exist anymore, but it continues to hold value in the sense that White Red can win an award with a monetary. A prize attached to it for the creation of that artwork. So I mean, it really once you start framing it in that economic sense, I think that that adds value or interest to what exactly house does as an artwork.
1: Yeah, it's it's almost an Alice in Wonderland world or a or a time travel world that you have this object that existed briefly in time doesn't exist anymore yet wins a prize and it also to me draws a parallel with that fellow who did a drawing of a child with a balloon and it was in a frame and then suddenly they switch on this shredding machine and shreds it to me this is just it's it's i don't know what it is but it, it ain't art
0: well, that was Banksy. And, of course, you know, Banksy also creates a lot of economic issues whereby financial issues where, for example, um, he'll paint something on a wall which, you know, might be, well, will be owned by, some. I mean, it might be owned by a council but sometimes owned by a private person. And I think there was one situation where Uh, A couple who owned this particular wall ended up in a terrible financial fix because they either had to pay a lot of money for the section of the wall to be removed because it was an artistic piece or to continue paying for the upkeep of it existing on their wall sort of in perpetuity.
1: But hold on. Are you saying that because he painted on the wall without their consent, He somehow obtained a real property rights in the war.
0: Well, so I don't know exactly what the legal dynamics behind this were, but basically what happened was so this British couple, they it was on the side of their home in Suffolk. And Banksy had painted this massive seagull, you know. So as an you'd think, oh well, great, now I own a Banksy, I can make a mint. But then, the, you know, were vandals coming to um, destroy it and all this kind of thing? So they either had to pay for the images protection and preservation, which would apparently cost almost $50,000 a year, or have the mural removed, which would cost up to a quarter of a million dollars. So I'm presuming it's some, is it some kind of moral rights issue? I'm it must not be. Sure. But-
1: but I can tell you this, if this had happened in 190 or 210 A.D. instead of 2010 A.D., the answer would have been very, very simple. Because in Roman law, if you paint a picture on someone's wall, they become the owner of it. It, it inheres in the wall. So if these people in England had lived during the Roman Empire, they could have just painted over it and all the financial problems would have disappeared. <laughs>
0: Well, if only if only we could go back to ancient. Rome. I know that you would love that, since you have great interest in ancient Rome. If only we could go back, but um, yeah, it's, unless we cannot. Yeah, and I mean there are also issues where you know people have complained before that then when Banksy starts painting in an area, people want to go there, so it causes gentrification in itself. So I mean, how art interacts with the changing uh socioeconomic landscape of an area is very interesting, but I mean these pranksters these k foundation pranksters they <laughs> so I mean white red was awarded the Turner Prize inside the Tate you know, on this evening there was a big party, and they waited outside, sort of goading her, saying, "You know, come, come, collect your yeah. prize." <laughs> Then they said that if she didn't come and collect it, they would burn the money. And then she sort of reluctantly kind of bitterly came out and got the money. She then donated some of it and gave the rest as grants to young artists so she didn't actually accept it for herself. But it was all also part of like a bigger prank scheme by the K Foundation. They took out full-page national press ads Announcing, it was very strange. First, announcing a new single, a new song, which was going to be available nowhere and not planned for release until World Peace was established. And then there was a new ad saying, abandon all art now. Um, and then another announcing the mother of all awards would be given to one of four artists exhibited in the Tate, which of course were the Turner Prize, um, competitors. And so, Eventually, the Turner Prize, the organisers did respond publicly and said, actually, it quotes, actually, that it proves the validity of our prize that someone would take so much trouble to set up this award.
1: Yeah, I think they were probably just offering a sort of rearguard action to this implied criticism of the, standards if you want to call it that of the turner prize which i understand they were one of the things that then occurs to me is given the the sometimes outlandish projects to which the turner prize is awarded this is something that of course to come back to your comment about the oscars is perennially asked at the oscars who are the members of the academy Mm -hmm. who award the oscars and and uh, it, it raises in my mind the fact that she won the Turner Prize. Who are the people who are awarding this prize? And is there a breadth of interest reflected in that? If we could go back to our categorization and levels of art from the 18th century Academy Francaise, you know, if you have only portraitists on the Turner board or awarding body, then course every painting that's going to win is going to be a, a a portrait and I'm just suspecting that we've got a self-perpetuating self-replicating type of art by modern performance artists being awarded every year and that therefore I I think that the K Foundation's point is a valid one
0: mm, yeah well I mean I think we'll also start as you say, this kind of rear guard action, the art world derided them as cowards and, quote, prats. Um, But I think that whether you agree with their tactics or not, they raise a very important question about who has the right to say what is and isn't art. I mean, I don't think that one can say that what they were doing and the exhibition they held and the whole performance of the awarding of this award for the worst British artist was any more or less artistic than what white red herself did you know oh yeah i agree which i think what her work was is more far more difficult to understand than what they were doing um, and yeah. it's, and so in that way their activities were had far more democratizing power than did hers
1: yes i think so and it's very interesting that she Almost had to accept the prize under duress in order to avoid the money being burnt. It would have been fun to see that.
0: Yeah. So, what do you think overall of house? And um, you know, what's your judgment here? Do you like it? Do you not like it? Why? What do you?
1: No, I'm I'm with the with the guy with the machine with the ball attached to the chain who had to destroy it. I I think his comment was straight on. It's it's it was spot on it's not art it's a lump of concrete i i think that it's you know if i was walking down that street Mm. and i'd seen that and i hadn't known it was a piece of art i wouldn't have known it was art
0: Mm. Uh,
1: you, you know it's that it could be that simple whereas if i was walking down past the original terraced houses i might say Okay, this is these are Victorian terrace houses, and I can identify these points of architecture that we use. Then, so I I don't think it uh, rises sufficiently high to to be considered a work of art. It was just a lump of concrete, no matter how much we dress it up. And I think you've lost this this episode, unfortunately.
0: <laughs> I think that um the discussion that arises from this whole episode is really fascinating. I think, however, that she, as an artist, actually really failed to deeply engage with the dynamics, with what she was playing with. Yes. You know, dynamics of urban redevelopment and economics, and it does feel like a bit of a copy-paste a drag-and-drop of... She had this idea that she previously used, which you can kind of, I think that the original idea, this exploration of personal memory and space and replicating that in the gallery was an interesting one. But I think that the way that she expanded it and transported it to a completely different environment without fully engaging with that was not Yeah. Specific. Yeah.
1: sounds like i've had a win this week that you've come around to my point of view
0: (laughs) well i never disclosed a particular point of view anyway i'm just like a guide leading you uh, adventure of personal development you know I. (laughs) (laughs) and um do you have any advice arising from this episode don't burn money
1: (laughs) yeah that's one thing um I think that the whole idea of buildings and demolition has brought to mind a piece of advice, which is don't be inhibited by fences, specifically fences on building sites. Always yield to your, give way to your exploratory instincts. Because I I wonder, I'm sure you remember, they were building a parish church quite close to where we used to walk when we lived in uh, the suburb of Ngunnawal in Canberra. And there were these, you know, I've always been frustrated as an adult because in Australia they seem to have very strict oh s constraints about building sites and there's fences here and do not walk there and the whole place, you know, is like a, like a burn and Wall. When I was a kid, I remember a house being built in our neighbourhood and I would just wander around it. The, wander around the building site after the builders had gone looking at all the cement uh, powder and taking a bit home to try and <laughs> mix it up with water and sand and, and looking at the bricks and well now you can't do that but you remember that when they were building that church the ground was uneven and so the lowest bar of the construction protection fence was enough for us to squeeze through <laughs> so we walked around and we squeezed through, walked around the inside of the church and admired all the work that was being done and then came out again. So yeah, that's my advice. Be adventurous and don't let fences hold you back.
0: Yeah, well, it was great. I'm not sure if it was excellent parenting, but it was a fun adventure. <laughs> I think maybe this is a new tactic to prevent similar things from happening. Just fill your construction site with concrete and no one can get yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. All right, well, thank you everyone for joining us for this episode of Art Dad Doesn't Like. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and we hope you'll be able to join us again next week. You can find us on Instagram at Pod, and you can see images of what we've been discussing in the episode description. And next week, Dad, we're going to be talking about Bismarck, but not the one you expect.
1: Oh, well, I hope sword briefly and yeah, now they're being dead. But let's see what we, what we see
0: Yeah, I saw your eyes light up for just a second behind your glasses and then your face just collapsed. But um, we're looking forward to discussing that then. Thank you. Bye.
1: Bye.